Hi, I'm Lone Candle. <clears throat> the founders of the United States had the Roman Republic in mind as they were designing our fair democracy. To an extent, the United States was modeled after Rome, and there are many parallels between the two peoples and governments. Unfortunately, we seem to be following Rome down another path. And that's the road from a vibrant republic to autocracy. Or more likely, to some sort of illiberal, fake democracy. We often imagine the fall of the Roman Republic as happening when one man, Julius Caesar, took unprecedented action to cross the Rubicon with his army and take down the Republic. But that is a misleading story. The Roman Republic wasn't going strong before it suddenly fell. Caesar's actions were not unprecedented. Roman society and institutions were weakening for over a hundred years. The actions of many politicians and the masses led to a breakdown in society and in the republican norms of government. The focus became less on compromise, fair governing, and respecting the process, and more on power at all costs, achieving one's ends however possible, using any trick in the law, even if it went against the spirit of the institutions and norms therein, and ultimately breaking any laws that got in one's way. If you're paying attention to U.S. politics, this should all sound familiar to you. There's a story that while leading the Constitutional Convention, U.S. founder Benjamin Franklin was asked what kind of government they created. And he said, a republic, if you can keep it. He knew of Rome. He knew that all republics, no matter how old, rest on the beliefs and actions of their people, and that republics are eternally vulnerable to power-hungry politicians, social strife, passions, and autocracy. Franklin knew that the vigilance of its citizens caring about the republic itself was necessary to maintain it. By ignoring the spirit of the Constitution, Americans are walking down the same stairs as the Romans. If we're not careful, we'll find ourselves one step away from autocracy and not even know it. A quick note on terminology. For the purpose of this piece, I'm essentially using republic and democracy interchangeably. In an older, maybe pedantic sense, republic refers to a government where the people vote to elect representatives, and these representatives make government decisions while in a democracy, the citizens themselves vote on government policy and legislation. In a real-world-slash-modern sense, these words are both used to describe a republic. And if we want to describe the direct voting form of government, we say direct democracy. I'm using the words as they are used today. Every country today that votes for representatives, we call a democracy. So the word democracy now just means republic. If I want to refer to a direct democracy, I'll say direct democracy. Another term, illiberalism. Liberal democracy has nothing to do with liberal versus conservative. It doesn't refer to American progressivism. Liberal democracy refers to republican government that follows the norms and spirit of republicanism. An illiberal democracy is one that has some appearances of democracy, but breaks many of the basic rules. Maybe the press isn't truly free, Maybe the elections are rigged. Maybe groups of people have unfair barriers to voting. Maybe the rules of power are regularly broken, etc. 
the United States could be a broken democracy that is a shattered and soiled figure of the Republican ideals of its founders and still not be a complete autocracy. Failing to be a full-on autocracy is no defense of broken Republican norms. So, I'll often talk about the U.S. taking steps towards illiberalism rather than simply toward autocracy. And of course, in time, illiberalism can lead to real autocracy, as the generations become more and more used to leaders striving simply for power and not caring for any democratic ideals. The traditional date given for the founding of Rome is 753 BC. It wasn't yet a republic, but a form of monarchy. By 509 BC, the Romans had overthrown their kings and become a republic. Two major classes existed in Roman society, the patricians and the plebs. The patricians were the aristocratic nobles descended from certain original families, and also included some families admitted to the patrician class early on. What defined a patrician was lineage, not wealth. Although the patricians mostly had the best land, later in the republic some plebs became very wealthy, but were still plebs and some patricians became poor, but were still patricians. Both plebs and patricians were Roman citizens. Patricians were held in higher regard and had more rights and privileges. Many positions of power could only be held by patricians, and the Senate was mostly a patrician body. Throughout the Republic, the advantages of the patricians created great tension. However, the differences were almost always resolved peacefully, and generally, over time, the plebs gained more power and influence in Roman government, gaining access to some offices and creating others that could check the power of patrician officials. So we had these two classes, which in an ideal republic wouldn't exist. But nevertheless, they both have access to power based on rules and elections. So they created and maintained a functioning republic. Then, a variety of things happened that facilitated the weakening of the Republic. Before the Punic Wars, Rome's wars with Carthage, Rome was an Italian empire. They conquered the other societies on the peninsula, but hadn't yet expanded far and wide. The Punic Wars, occurring from 264 to 146 BC, resulted in several changes that strained the Republic. First, during the wars themselves, soldiers had to be gone for longer periods of time. At this time, the Roman army was made up of citizen farmers. Their main role was farming, but in times of war were called up to fight, before going back to their farms. During most of the Italian wars, this meant short and seasonal campaigns. However, when fighting overseas and maintaining colonies, deployments were longer. They missed important agricultural seasons and their farms deteriorated. Rich landowners, in contrast, could pay workers to maintain and grow their farms. Furthermore, the wars resulted in masses of slaves brought back to the homeland. Before, there were some slaves in Italy, but it wasn't a slave society. Afterwards, there were hordes of slaves, and the same wealthy citizens whose farms could be maintained during campaigns were the people who could afford to buy slaves. This means the average farmer not only had to leave their farms untended to fight Rome's wars, but had to compete against slave labor. Additionally, as the population grew, there was just less good land and opportunities to go around. For many, this was untenable, and their farms couldn't survive. The wealthy were more than happy to buy up the small farms. The wars created huge opportunities for people to get rich by stealing the wealth of the conquered, and most of this went to few individuals. It made overseas appointments incredibly valuable, and the control of overseas mines also made the rich richer. 
people with capital had access to investments around the empire and could use money to make more money. This all created huge inequality. The richest people of this period were far, far richer than the richest people a hundred years before. The former farmers had no choice but to migrate to Rome in throngs, looking for work. But there weren't nearly enough jobs in the city. Slaves worked there too, worsening unemployment. The inequality didn't single-handedly bring down the Republic, but it created tensions in society that in the end, the Republic failed to adapt to. Along with all this wealth came rampant corruption. Political office didn't simply give its holder the power of that office, but the ability to gain wealth and investments. Scipio Africanus was the great Roman general and hero of the Punic Wars. He didn't win the war, graciously receive the thanks of the Republic, then go home. He created a cult of personality. In the places he conquered, he built an independent power base of clients that made him nice profits. His power no longer rested on the institutions of the government, but on his wild popularity in these client-patron relationships. Both of these set an example for future leaders. He didn't single-handedly bring down the Republic, but it was a major step that others followed. Wars became tougher, particularly in Spain, where Romans fought a long guerrilla war with little loot. This made the life of the citizen soldier more difficult. All these problems created an environment susceptible to populists and demagogues. Tiberius Gracchus, alive from around 163 to 133 BC, rallied the people to his cause. He wanted to improve the lot of the common man and help them become farmers again. You see, there was state land that for generations some of the wealthy had been illegally using for themselves. Tiberius wanted to take this land back, compensate the current occupants, and give it to the people. The wealthy conservatives severely opposed this idea. To get his way, Tiberius broke norms. He never actually ordered violence, but he flirted with it, using the threats of mobs to get his way. Tiberius held the position of tribune, and the Senate opposed him. He went around the Senate using the plebeium council to pass land reform. Another tribune opposed the idea and vetoed it. Tiberius responded by vetoing everything the Senate did, essentially shutting down the Senate's ability to pass new laws. Previously, when there was a veto, compromise resulted, but here, tensions were just too high. Tiberius had rallied the people to his cause and wouldn't back down, while the Senate and the aristocracy similarly wouldn't give in. Tiberius didn't stop there. He proposed a bill in the plebeium council that successfully deposed the other tribune. That was unprecedented, and it completely broke with norms to just end a tribune's turn like that. Later, Tiberius got land reform passed, but the Senate refused to appropriate enough money for it. A foreign king died who, for some reason, gave all his estate to the Roman people. Tiberius pushed to take it for the land reform and took this effort to the assembly of the people. This bypassed the Senate, even though foreign policy was the Senate's jurisdiction. When Tiberius's time as tribune was up, he tried to run for a second term in a row, even though this was illegal. Again, he pushed the boundaries of his personal power. One reason he so desired a second term was because people feared he wanted to be king and wanted him dead. This becomes a common problem for Roman politicians. Tensions became so high and respect for peaceful Republican procedures so low that politicians knew they'd face either legal punishment or informal attacks without the defense of an official office. That made them even more willing to break any rule or norm to maintain power. 
not only would failure lead to unpreferred government policy, but their own banishment or even death. Tiberius won another term as tribune, but an armed Senate-supporting mob attacked Tiberius and his followers, killing 300 people, including Tiberius. This was the first major instance of political violence in the Republic. Violently killing political opponents is a great blow to the ideals of Republican government, and this was only the beginning. Additionally, rather than giving the dead a proper funeral, their bodies were dumped into the Tiber River, breaking yet another cherished norm. Finally, it was normal for Romans to apologize when such wrongs were committed, but the ghost of Tiberius received no such apology. Later, Tiberius's younger brother Gaius became tribune on an even stronger people's platform. He passed several policies through the people's house, ignoring the Senate. He lost some popularity after proposing citizenship for Italian allies, losing his bid for a third term. He was then murdered. During Gaius's time, the Senate would propose benefits to the people similar to what Gaius proposed, but up the ante and promise even more. The difference being... Gaius was serious about his proposals. The Senate was just bullshitting for political purposes. After Gaius was defeated and murdered, the Senate never fulfilled the fake promises they made. The Gracchi brothers represented the inequality-produced tensions in Roman society, and used these to spread a populist message and turn politics into a no-holds-barred arena. They threw away norms and pushed for power in whatever way possible. The Senate responded with its own tactics that ignored the spirit of republicanism and did whatever they could to get their way. Decades later, the crazy tactics would escalate. Gaius Marius, living from 157 to 86 BC, was the next populist leader. Marius illegally ran for election, then had many successive consulships, an unprecedented achievement. So the Roman army originally was citizen farmers, and a requirement to be in the army was to own land. But by Marius's time, there was not enough landowners because so many small farms got eaten up by the wealthy. Marius responded by removing land requirements. This may have been necessary to meet military needs, but it proved to be a great danger to the Republic. Before, the farmers went and fought, then went home to their farms. They fought for their society and out of patriotism, but didn't need the army to provide for them. Their loyalty was to the nation. Once soldiers' sole livelihood was the military, their loyalty was to whoever paid their checks. In the field, generals would make great promises to their soldiers for booty and land. The whole prospect of a secure life was dependent on the general's ability to fulfill his promises. This made the soldiers loyal to the general rather than the republic, and led to soldiers not caring if they trampled over republican values. Marius was a successful general, defeating many of Rome's enemies. Politically, he needed the support of the army, so had to get them the land he promised, at all costs. Marius put his likeness on coins to advertise himself. He allied with violent and populist politicians. He used violence to defeat his political opponents. At this point, violence became expected, because one had to use violence to combat violence, both gang and mob tactics. Later, when Marius was an old man, he fought with a younger soldier named Sola. This resulted in civil war. At one point, Sola was put in charge to defeat a great enemy in the east. A victory here would bring him great honor and power. Marius tried to steal this command, so Sola marched on Rome and took it, then went east to fight the enemy. 
Thus, not even Julius Caesar's march on Rome was unprecedented. Marius died of natural causes. Later, Sulla appointed himself dictator for life in 82 BC and sentenced thousands of political enemies to death, ruling by fear and terror. Any positive mention of Marius was banned. Sulla claimed his goal was to save the Republic. He made several reforms intent on limiting the power of populists, who Sulla blamed for the breakdown of the Republic. But as should be obvious, declaring oneself dictator for life and assassinating one's political opponents is no way to save a republic. One of his reforms was to weaken the tribune. Another was to pack the Senate with his supporters. A body that is elected or appointed by formal republican rules is meaningless if a leader can just pack it with his own supporters. A position like tribune doesn't give its constituency any power if a leader who opposes those constituents can rip it of power. Sola seemed to think he had saved the Republic, but his reforms died with him. All he did was further destroy Republican norms. After him, politics was all about using any trick available to gain power. Norms and the spirit of Rome's Republic were all but meaningless. When Caesar came of age, he had the example of the populists in how to rally the people to his cause and use them to overcome Republican norms. He had the military reforms that allowed him to use financial reward and inspirational leadership to gain legions loyal only to him. And he had Sola's example of how easy it is for a man with power to declare himself dictator for life. Before Caesar, the norms and rules were already broken, leaving the Republic bleeding out on the ground. Caesar just needed the skill and opportunity to finish it off. Pompey, alive from 106 to 48 BC, became the next leading man of Rome after Sola. He used his army to persuade his election. He took whatever title he wanted, ignoring the official rules, although he didn't become a full-on dictator. Another powerful man was Crassus. While Pompey ruled through military might, prestige, and loyalty, Crassus did so through money and corrupt politics. Both methods corroded Republican norms. Rather than running in fair elections and letting the chips fall where they may, these two men, along with a younger upstart named Julius Caesar, made a private deal to essentially share power among themselves. Before going to Gaul, Caesar used violence and tricky methods to get laws passed and remove political opponents. At one point, Caesar's opponents tried to stop him from passing legislation by declaring every day a public holiday until the end of Caesar's consulship, thus stopping the legislators from meeting. Such a ridiculous, unrepublican trick didn't work on Caesar, who just used violence to keep the legislating body open, and his law passed. After Crassus died, Pompey and the Senate in Rome demanded Caesar disband his army and refused to give him a new office. Caesar had committed many crimes, and he knew that without his army or some other position of power, he'd be punished and likely banished. Rather than give in, he marched on Rome, fought a civil war with Pompey, and then essentially became dictator. Later, he was famously killed by senators who wanted to protect the Republic, but his adopted son, Augustus Caesar, won a series of civil wars, as gaining power by force was the norm then, then established imperial rule, permanently killing the Republic. 200 years earlier, Roman armies battling Roman armies would have seemed unthinkable. But by the time Augustus was defeating his enemies, it happened regularly. Augustus still allowed the trappings of Republican government. He pretended to be the first among equals, rather than the sole ruler. 
This shows that even at this time, Republican norms were valued, and putting on a nice dress of Republican norms facilitated Augustus's rule, even though underneath was all dictatorship. In the coming generations, even those trappings were removed, and emperors wouldn't even pretend to be anything but dictators for life in an autocratic empire. The Roman Republic lasted almost 500 years. In that time, the citizens became complacent. They thought, the Republic has always been here, and it always will. But even though the Republic had stood since 509 BC, in 49 BC, Caesar crossed the Rubicon, and in 27 BC, Augustus was granted powers by the Senate. It doesn't matter how long a Republic has existed. A breakdown of norms can happen step after step and lead to the dissolution of a free Republic into something else. That happened in Rome, and it is happening in the United States which has existed for just over 200 years. The United States, like Rome, is a republic. Both governments had checks and balances, the natures of which evolved over time. They both expanded across their local territories. Rome eventually created a Mediterranean-wide empire, while the U.S. became a world power with influence and responsibilities around the globe. Most important to this piece the United States is currently going down the road of taking step after step of norm-breaking, where the institutions of Republican government are slowly losing respect and legitimacy. Since the U.S. constitutional founding, the President has been in charge of executing the nation's laws and the Congress in charge of appropriating money. The President could veto a spending bill he didn't like, so the two would have to come to an agreement in order to fund the government. Although there were disagreements, the two bodies of government had been able to forge compromises and not interrupt the business of government. If the two sides had not come to an agreement by the time money ran out, this would require parts of the government to shut down, costing the taxpayer millions and forcing government employees to go without paychecks. This certainly isn't how a properly functioning republic runs its governmental operations. The first shutdown came in 1980. Only the Federal Trade Commission was shut down, and it was partly caused by changing views on whether the FTC would actually need to shut down. During 1981, 1984, and 1986, President Reagan and Congress couldn't agree on bills in time, and the government had to be briefly shut down, furloughing thousands of federal employees. These shutdowns lasted a day or less. A four-day shutdown occurred during the term of George H.W. Bush, the damage here was softened by it occurring over a Columbus Day weekend. The big shutdowns began in the 90s, where a Republican Congress led by Newt Gingrich couldn't agree on an appropriations bill with President Bill Clinton. The Republican bill wanted to reduce spending, but did so in a way that would damage Clinton's goals. The two failed to find a compromise, resulting in 800,000 furloughed federal workers and a majority of government departments being shut down for five days. Shortly later, a second shutdown happened for 21 days. Less departments were shut down, and 284,000 workers were furloughed. Eventually, a compromise was reached, but after much damage had been done, the government, tourist industry, and airline industry lost millions of dollars, and shutdowns interrupted the following activities, processing of passports, the processing of visas, medical research, and toxic waste cleanup. Costly shutdowns again occurred in 2013 and 2018. 
The president has always had the power to veto appropriation bills, and always could have just vetoed them over and over again, until he got his way. The Congress always could ignore vetoes and just send the same or similar bills to the president, refusing to listen to his disagreements and find a compromise. But both sides had enough decorum and respect for the compromised nature of Republican government to find a solution before shutting down the government. While the first shutdown was half an accident, and the ones in the 80s were very brief, they got much worse in the 90s and continued later on. This is quite similar to Rome, which for hundreds of years reached compromise between factions in society. But then starting with Tiberius Gracchus, he used his power to repeatedly veto the Senate, shutting down its ability to pass policy. Tribunes could have always done such a thing, but chose not to. Such actions continued in Caesar's day, with the Senate making every day a holiday so Caesar couldn't pass laws. Acts of Congress give the President the power to declare national emergencies. These give the President extraordinary powers in special times of need. Congress had fairly clear events in mind that these were to be used for, but Presidents have used emergency declarations to achieve other political goals, and the Congress, the courts, and the people have not stopped them. These are anti-Republican grabs of power, similar to a Roman leader unlawfully taking the authority of dictator. Dictators were appointed for emergency situations to lead Rome out of trouble. They were supposed to be temporary, but Sola's dictatorship had no time limit, and he didn't use it to defeat foreign enemies, but to achieve political reforms. A particularly egregious example came in 2019. President Trump wanted money to build a border wall. Congress has the constitutional power of the purse. Congress decided to not give the funds. Instead of obeying the Constitution and accepting Congress's decision, Trump declared an emergency and went around Congress. The intent of emergency statutes were not to get funding for whatever priority the president thinks is important. Republican governments only work when the players play by the rules. This is just one more example of the rules being ignored in a weakening of the U.S. Republic. The Congress passes laws, and sometimes the exact meaning of the law or how to enforce it isn't clear. This gives the president flexibility to declare how to operate with executive orders. However, presidents more and more use executive orders to go around Congress and essentially legislate. This results from parties and their bases caring more about getting their preferred policy through than maintaining the republic. A classic autocrat move is to discredit or even dismantle forces in the government that could point out or enforce one's wrongdoing, or the wrongdoing of one's allies. Part of the U.S. government is federal police forces that investigate and help enforce laws. The FBI is a key component to this. Another important series of offices are the inspector generals who investigate the workings of government and report on how the government is performing, as well as on illegal or unethical activity. A functioning republic will have separation from these investigative units and the leaders because if the leaders have complete control over these actors, then they can be immune from them and act in bad ways without discovery or punishment. In the U.S., the president always could get rid of FBI directors or speak unfairly about the FBI or remove inspector generals, but they generally didn't because of the strong norm that to do such a thing would be to abuse the spirit of Republican government and allow leaders to act poorly or unethically without punishment or being brought to the public's knowledge. 
President Nixon tried to fire several such investigators, but he did not get away with it. He was about to be impeached, but resigned instead. Fast forward to the Trump administration, who has fired James Comey apparently because he was investigating Trump and his allies, unfairly slighted the FBI to discredit information they found about him and his allies, released several inspector generals apparently because they reported poor performance or because they were investigating his political allies, and attacked whistleblowers who appeared to, out of good faith, be reporting what they saw as improper behavior. Furthermore, Trump wanted his attorney general to interfere in an investigation of him, and when Attorney General Jeff Sessions refused, Trump fired him. He also tried to fire a series of people for not interfering inappropriately in an investigation of himself, but fortunately, staff members ignored his order. In democracies around the world that fall into autocracy, removing the independence and credibility of official investigators is a key strategy to grabbing unrepublican power. Trump's actions are dangerous steps, and more so in that he has gotten away with such behavior. A future president who has done some great wrong can similarly disgrace or fire investigators and then say, President Trump did it and wasn't punished, so I can too. Gaius Marius knew that the Gracchi brothers rallied the people and used mob tactics to get their way when normal Republican procedures failed. Caesar knew that Sulla took power by fighting a civil war and getting himself declared dictator. Augustus knew from Caesar and Sulla that Rome would allow a leader to take unrepublican power. By allowing Trump to act so, we take steps toward autocracy, and now the next step a new leader takes will be further down those stairs. The power to pardon is essentially unlimited. Does that mean it is within the spirit of the Constitution and Republican government to use it to pardon family, friends, or political allies? Of course not. Leaving office, President Clinton pardoned his brother for drug offenses. President Trump has pardoned multiple people not based on due justice, but because they were his political allies. This does great damage to justice, being injustices in their own right, and further deteriorating the fairness and legitimacy of the government. Tiberius Gracchus had another tribune removed from office for political reasons. Someone always could have done that, before people respected Republican norms. Likewise, the U.S. Constitution has a method for impeaching and removing a president. The main point to the power is to remove a president who is abusing his power. Lying about a blowjob isn't a fundamental abuse of presidential power. Likewise, some Democrats wanted to impeach President Trump the moment he got into office before he even took the actions that made his eventual impeachment appropriate. The founders wanted presidents to choose Supreme Court justices and the Senate to provide advice and consent. Plenty of historical writings from the founders make clear that the focus of advice and consent was to make sure the candidate had the basic qualifications for the job and that he wasn't appointed simply as a political favor. The point was not for the Senate to get an equal say in appointing a judge or to reject a judge based on ideology. However, the letter of the law allows the Senate to reject a judge for whatever reason. The Senate once followed basic norms and stayed true to the Founders' goals, but that has since slipped. Democrats and President Reagan escalated Supreme Court approvals with Robert Bork. Reagan by nominating a particularly extreme Supreme Court justice, and the Democrats by going all out to successfully stop him based on ideology. Democrats attacked Justice Thomas for sexual harassment allegations, 
and brought up a sexual assault allegation against Brett Kavanaugh at the last second of his confirmation. Both these justices fought back with bullshit rants that sounded more like firebrand political speeches than a reasonable response against serious allegations. During Obama's presidency, Senate Republicans under Mitch McConnell filibustered judges at unprecedented levels, leading to Democrats to remove the filibuster for some appointments. Obama appointed Merrick Garland for a Supreme Court vacancy, and the Senate Republicans refused to even give him a vote. They simply let the Supreme Court seat stay open in hopes that they would win the next election and could take the seat for themselves. This strategy worked. It blasted a hole in how Supreme Court nominations were supposed to work, but it maintained a conservative court. When it comes to deciding who is and isn't on the Supreme Court, over the last few decades, the U.S. Senate gives less deference to founding intentions and Republican norms and instead puts all their efforts in gaining power. With no filibuster allowed on normal judges and an alteration to change debating time from 30 to 2 hours, McConnell slams judges through like an assembly line, filling open positions throughout the judiciary, many of which are open due to stalling tactics he led while Democrats were in power. McConnell even got rid of the filibuster for the Supreme Court nominees. Over time, the relatively non-political, neutral third branch of government has become almost as ideological and partisan as the elected branches. The way President Trump acts toward the media is another important breaking of Republican norms. The media plays a fundamental role in a democracy. The people need information so they can judge their elected officials in the next election. Free speech of the people and the media is a fundamental right, and necessary to reveal the faults or misdeeds of government officials. The media is far from perfect, and a president criticizing the media would certainly be fair. But Trump has taken it further. He treats the media like an enemy of the people. He claims that many factually accurate stories are false. He has encouraged violence towards media members, proposed changes to libel laws so he can more easily sue and silence them, and has threatened to sue them. In November 2019, he unjustly suspended a reporter's press credentials, an action that both Fox News and the New York Times worked to overturn. These actions align closely with those of dictators around the world. Fortunately, the media remains free and violence has been very low, but these are steps in preventing the American people from knowing the truth of things. Many Trump followers dismiss true stories simply because they have been convinced that most media outlets can't bring them accurate information. That is a huge breakdown in society, and while this blind skepticism and ill will toward the news media started before Trump, he has escalated it by using the power of the presidential bully pulpit to further damage the credibility of the media that, while flawed, are often bringing true stories. For much of the public, falsehood reigns. Leaders don't need to ban the media to turn toward illiberalism, just discredit it enough so those who support the leader will dismiss true critical information and so many in the middle will give up on seeing through all the bullshit and not pay attention to or take actions against a leader's illiberalism. Trump's encouragement of violence wasn't just toward the media. Trump said he'd pay the legal fees of his supporters who engaged in violence against protesters. A Trump supporter actually sucker-punched a protester at a Trump rally. Trump would say that he doesn't condone 
violence. But rather than consistently condemning the violent act, when asked about whether he'd pay the supporters legal fees, Trump responded, quote, I've actually instructed my people to look into it. This is nothing compared to the violence the Roman Republic saw, but it's best to stop political violence as early as possible. And if we're not careful, this could be a sign of things to come. Elections are a basic part of any Republican government. They are how the people speak their voice and most directly influence policy. However, President Trump baselessly delegitimizes them, using the communicating powers of the presidency to falsely claim that certain elections are rigged or that the voting numbers are false due to great amounts of voter fraud that the evidence doesn't support. Republicans around the country, likewise, claim to be fighting voter fraud when they make it more difficult for people to vote. But the evidence shows very little fraud, and we know that certain people will vote in lower numbers when things like voter ID laws are implemented. It is no coincidence that these people tend to vote Democratic. President Trump's opposition to and false statements about vote by mail also seem to be motivated by preventing opponents from voting not serious and insurmountable fraud problems. Remember, even if the number of votes suppressed is small, in close elections, small numbers can make a difference. If leaders can suppress some now, they will suppress more later. And leaders don't need to suppress even close to all their opponents, just enough to win. President Trump doesn't respect traditional boundaries between the president and certain independent officials and judges. He regularly demands that the Federal Reserve act in ways that will benefit him politically and crudely tries to intervene over civil litigation that he is a party to. In both Wisconsin and North Carolina, Republicans lost elections. But before the newly elected officials took office, the legislators passed laws limiting the incoming governor's powers. Elections mean much less if the party currently in office can just strip powers away if they lose. States attack republicanism in other ways by changing the rules of the game to elect more of their party. In California, the Democratic legislator redistricted so L.A. County would have more Democrats on its board of supervisors. Indiana turned to selecting Marion County judges by merit. Not a bad idea if done for noble purposes and equally to all similar jurisdictions. In this case, judges that used to be elected by populations of Democrats and Blacks are now appointed by a Republican governor. The Republican legislator in Tennessee made it so judicial races are nonpartisan, but only in Democratic areas. Arizona and Georgia legislators have packed their state Supreme Courts, and many state legislators have repeatedly tried to wrest power from their courts. Such actions are similar to Sola using unrepublican power to weaken his opponents. He, at least, was misguidedly trying to save the republic. Today's illiberal actions seem motivated by power and partisan ideology. A basic power of Congress is to investigate the executive branch. Good governments requires this oversight. But instead of using it to legitimately discover truths, Congress ignores problems of the executive if it is of their own party. And if it's of a different party, they waste tremendous amounts of time and produce books and books of propaganda investigating bullshit. In an effort to suck money from partisan donors, a Republican House produced 140 hours of sworn testimony on whether Bill Clinton abused the White House Christmas card list. But a similar Congress, while they had control during 
five years of the W. Bush presidency didn't subpoena the White House once. On something much more substantial than a Christmas card accusation, the Iraq War, this Congress wasn't interested in providing their key role of oversight, only having a superficial look at abuse cases like Abu Ghraib torture. Even when there's something legitimate to investigate, all too often these investigations get turned into base-angering news generators, finding things that look bad and screaming bloody murder, whether or not what they found is remotely murder. The trends of norm-breaking were led early on by Newt Gingrich. He told new Republican candidates, It is a war for power. Don't try to educate. That is not your job. What is the primary purpose of a political leader? To build a majority. This is the exact kind of attitude that took over Rome. The fair, peaceful, and legitimate transfer of power based on Republican values doesn't mean shit. What matters is power. That is all we should strive for. This attitude destroyed the Roman Republic, and it's destroying the American Republic. After Obama was elected president, Senate leader Mitch McConnell said, The single most important thing we want to achieve is for President Obama to be a one-term president. This follows in the goals of Newt Gingrich. What doesn't matter is finding a way to produce better policy, even if it requires tough compromise. Keeping norms and institutions strong doesn't mean shit. What matters is political power. The single most important thing we want to achieve is for our party to win the next presidential election. That is not the most important thing for the Senate to be doing, or for Republicans in the Senate to be doing. That it was the most important thing for them shows the huge breakdown in the ability of the current parties to govern. When governing is this shitty, it isn't too many steps until people say, fuck it, let's support a dictator, or fuck it, let's elect a reality TV star businessman who doesn't appear to have basic competency on the issues. McConnell's tactics were demonstrated by his frequent filibuster uses. Filibusters don't have to be officially filed, but cloture's votes to break a filibuster are officially recorded. Only halfway through Obama's term, almost half of all cloture motions ever filed on presidential nominations were done during the Obama presidency. Despite McConnell's damning role in this, he was exploding an already growing trend. The Democrats used the filibuster excessively against George W. Bush, too. During the W. Bush administration, the Hassert-led House created the Hassert Rule, that legislation would only reach the floor if they had a majority of the majority, which limits the ability of the House to form broad bipartisan coalitions. Republicans have broken this rule, though. Multiple forces likely cause the extreme U.S. polarization that leads politicians and citizens to value power and getting their way over strong Republican institutions. However, one that was in common between Rome and the U.S. was inequality. People feeling like the rich unfairly gain too much wealth compared to that of the common person heightens tensions and makes people vulnerable to a demagogue as well as not valuing Republican norms. They may think, if the Republic produces such unfair outcomes, then fuck the Republic. Or more likely, inequalities put people on edge and ready to blame others for their problems. If I have to work so hard to get comparatively so little, then goddamn welfare stooges and illegal immigrants sure as hell better not be stealing my money. 
Not to mention minorities getting a leg up by affirmative action. Fuck that. I don't care about these hard-to-understand, arcane democratic norms. Just make things right again. It's not clear how much inequality really is the cause of norm breakdown or polarization. Other factors like the lack of an American enemy, the natural sorting of the two parties and being ideologically similar, the sorting of the parties to line up with rural, white, and Christian versus other, the weakening of religion, the expansion of cable radio and social media, and the lack of party control over primaries, producing nominations more to the extreme than the median voter, also may play a role. But inequality certainly doesn't help. Along with the rich being richer, is their greater influence in politics. It's hard for the people to form independent opinions when moneyed interests can spam the airwaves, the internet, and mailboxes with messaging designed by highly paid propagandists. When the government is designing policy on a complicated subject, it doesn't consult the poor souls who will be negatively affected by externalities, but those with access and expertise. Access is purchased by money, and so is expertise. Additionally, who is the greatest expert other than the business, whose interest is profit rather than the best policy for the country. In Rome, governmental power became a playground for the rich to get richer. The U.S. must be careful that its democracy produces policies for the people, or trust in public institutions will further erode, making them just as vulnerable to autocracy as Rome. All politicians lie. It's a frustrating problem. Unfortunately, President Trump has taken the frequency and ridiculousness of telling falsehoods to an all-new level. That many Americans and leaders in his party tacitly support such falsity sets a precedent for future demagogues to know they can gain and maintain power without respect for the truth. Many of President Trump's actions have the strength they do in taking steps away from Republican ideals because one of the parties in a two-party system allows it. The Republican criticism of his norm-breaking has decreased over his administration, and Republican officials either refrain from commenting or vocally defend him. It is the support and silence from his party that makes the steps so real. When Nixon illegally spied in Watergate, eventually, Republicans fought against him. When Franklin Roosevelt tried to pack the court, there was bipartisan opposition. Joseph McCarthy's Red Scare went on for far too long. But eventually, his tactics were defeated by bipartisan efforts. When one's own party allows norms to be broken, or works with a president to break them, then those actions are far more damaging. Time will tell whether President Trump facilitates a future leader taking deeper steps toward liberalism. A big advantage of Republican government is that political losers weren't thrown in jail, banished, or killed. They just don't get political office. This principle faltered in Rome and led to the downfall of the Republic. Donald Trump encouraging chants of, lock her up, are an unfortunate step down this road. Fortunately, no serious actions were taken based on these chants. The protests after George Floyd's police killing were mostly peaceful, but had some destruction of property, looting, and violence. President Trump appropriately condemned such behavior but also spoke more generally of dominating the streets. No president should want to dominate the streets. This is a free country. Showing that I'm not simply misreading his comments, 
police violently cleared mostly peaceful protesters in Lafayette Square so the president could take a picture in front of a church that had parts of it burned the day before. If the republic was strong, many prominent republicans would condemn this blatant violation of freedom of speech and assembly. But they did not. It starts with one square, but when leaders get away with it once, they and others will do more later. Additionally, plenty of reports from and video of these protests show police using unnecessary force against protesters. I've mostly described the actions of politicians, and they should be condemned for damaging the republic. But this trend is the fault of the people as well. Left and especially right-wing bases passionately care about their causes and demand success from their representatives or else. Politicians feel like they face a choice of taking yet another step toward illiberalism or losing power to someone even more willing to bend the rules of democracy. I can't cover every norm broken in recent history, but I hope this survey revealed how similar our norm-breaking is to Rome. While the Republican Party has been worse than this, the Democrats are guilty too. So don't let that I'm willing to say which party is worse confuse you. This is an American problem. That is not just the fault of one party. The U.S. slide is verifiable by scholarly indexes created to track democracy around the world. In four indexes, the U.S. clearly has begun its downward trend. In another, funded by the CIA, the U.S. is amazingly perfect. The Global Democracy Ranking composes of 60 indicators, and the U.S. has fallen into the category of flawed democracy, mainly because of dropping trust in political parties, elected representatives, and governmental institutions. Another democracy index is Freedom House. Likewise, we've been trending downward. In this index, the U.S. fall is due to Russian interference in domestic elections, domestic attempts to manipulate the electoral system, executive and legislative dysfunction, conflicts of interest and lack of transparency, and pressure on judicial independence and the rule of law. The fall in the U.S. Freedom House score is small compared to other countries like Hungary, Serbia, Turkey, and Venezuela, but still isn't good, especially if the weakening of institutions leads to greater drops later. If we look at five different VDEM democracy indexes, we can see that U.S. democracy grew throughout most of the 20th century, but more recently is struggling. Looking at Transparency International's Corruption Perceptions Index reveals that the U.S. has gone from the high 70s to the high 60s, dropping almost 10 points in less than 25 years. This index measures the perceptions of public sector corruption, so the American people think their government is more corrupt than they used to. This is related to the lack of trust driving a drop in the first index. The United States does, however, have a perfect polity score. This index fails to capture the worrying damage done to Republican norms. I'm not sure if it being funded by the U.S. government plays a role in that, or if the index is just less sensitive for other reasons. It is true that the U.S. isn't an illiberal democracy yet, despite the path it's on. I normally just list my sources on a sources page linked below, but so much of what I've said has already been said by two guys that I feel the need to mention them in the piece. So here's a special thanks to Mike Duncan, creator of the History of Rome podcast and writer of The Storm Before the Storm, and to 
Edward Watts, writer of Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny. There are, of course, many differences between Rome and the United States. My main points are the same, even with a detailed understanding of these differences, so I'm not going to waste your time going through them. Similarly, the story of U.S. democracy is much more complicated than the current decline. Originally, only white men with property could vote. We had race-based slavery and centuries of gender and race discrimination. Hell, we even had an incredibly destructive civil war. However, in the 20th century, we grew into a true liberal democracy and started making good on Republican norms. We can't let our dirty past distract us from the dangerous trends of today. As America's democracy erodes, have Americans done anything about it? We still vote at lower numbers than our peers. Many feel apathetic about politics and can do nothing but throw up their hands. Others passionately support candidates without stopping to think what those candidates really want to do and whether they are good for Republican values. Stop buying excuses for politicians to make voting harder, steal power against the spirit of the Constitution, and demean important institutions. These arguments are almost always bad, yet people repeat them again and again. In Rome, Caesar was popular. Mark Antony famously rallied the people in anger over the tyrant's death. Similarly, in the U.S., each step toward ending a republic isn't met with boos, but cheers. Citizens are too focused on their partisanship, ideology, hatred, and misguided passions to care or notice that they're losing their republic. They may not notice until a hundred years later they're suffering under the foot of a Caligula, and then they compare what was and what could have been to what the many unrepublican steps led the country to. But by then, it will be too late. I'm Lone Candle. Like me? Comment me? Love me.